Good morning, church. My name is Anna, if I haven't met you, and I'll be <clears throat> reading the Old Testament reading this morning. It comes from Isaiah 35. Today's reading from Isaiah brings us to the end of a major section of the book. Last week we saw God's judgment coming, pictured as a burning desert, but that's not the end of the story. For those who turn to God and trust in him, he promised to turn that desert into life and everlasting joy. So beginning at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 35, found on page 582. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it the splendour of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendour of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Good morning and peace to all of you. My name is Daniel, and I'll be reading from the uh, book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 1 to 17. That's page 893. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of uh, unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him uh, out for for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod 
was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Then the angel told him, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what, he, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to, to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel let him, left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jews, the Jews, the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this, has, when this had dawned, dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary and the, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the, at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening, it, uh, without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Peter, but Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter mentioned, uh, motioned, with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. He said, he said, and then he left for another place. Thank you. Hello, good morning everyone, is this on? One, two, one, two, one, two, three. I think it sounds about on. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Vincent, and I am one of the ministers of St. Barnabas. I'm usually at Fairfield, uh, so I don't usually see you guys, but it's good to be here today. How about we pray as we begin? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Uh, and in times of change, like today, uh, we pray that your word would continue to give us confidence uh, that it would be precious to us, that it would be like a soothing balm for us, that it would help us to trust you in all situations. And we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Um, well, 
time really does fly, hey. Uh, one, first of July today. It's already more than halfway through the year. It only felt like yesterday that Kirsty was telling us that she was heading off and now the time has come. Uh, for myself, I joined the church around January, February time and uh, it already feels like that I've been here for a while and we've had a really wonderful time, my family and I, uh, being welcomed into the St. Barnabas family. Um, one of my memories, my earliest memories of when we first arrived was there was a men's night, a men's evangelistic night over here at uh, Bosley Park that I first joined. And uh, one of the things that I realized when I arrived here was that the Southwest has really, really good food. <laughs> um, so I remember that night, there was a, uh, on that night when I arrived, there was actually a whole wheel of Parmesan cheese. You know, I've been to Coles, I've seen Parmesan cheese. There was a whole wheel of Parmesan cheese and there were like dips, there were antipasto plates, there were chicken wings and, and, and then there were these chorizos. Oh man. <laughs> uh, and these chorizos, they were hot, they were cooked over some burning coal and when I received them, they were dripping with fat, and when I bit into it, they were just delicious. And I was thinking to myself, I have arrived at the right place. <laughs> um, now, now, why am I telling you about my experience of this great men's event slash food night? Um, well, as we've been going through the book of Acts this past term, and we've seen last week especially that God has opened up the floodgate of salvation so that everyone from every nation is invited to come and know Jesus. Every tongue, every tribe. And one of the amazing things that we saw last week, that God symbolically made all food pure, that nothing was off the table, so to say. And so this amazing thing is that when we gather uh, different people from different cultures and different uh, nationalities, when we gather and we eat together in fellowship with, uh, in Christ Jesus, we not only see one another as strangers anymore, but we actually get to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is an amazing thing that we've seen in Acts. And in, what we saw was that this was actually a historical high point because it actually shifted Christianity from this small Jewish religion to now a faith that is universal, that is for the whole world. Uh, everyone is welcome and to come and receive salvation in Christ Jesus. But if you've been following us uh, in the book of Acts, you'll also know that every time the word of God goes out, that every time Jesus is proclaimed, then opposition follows. And that's what we'll see today. Uh, this time the opposition coming even greater in the form of governmental persecution. So let's go into verse 1, um, point 1, chaos. And you'll want to have your Bibles open in Acts 12. Acts 12, but verse 1, um, it says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, the question, of course, for us is, well, who is Herod? Um, in the Bible, there's actually a number of Herods. Probably the most famous one is King Herod, who wanted Jesus to be killed when Jesus was first born. Well, the Herod that we're reading about here in Acts is actually the grandson of that Herod. So you can see that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Again, he wants to persecute the church. So that's this King Herod. But verse 2, verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. 
And again, well, who's James, right? Um, and again, the Bible tells us of a number of James. Um, perhaps the most famous one that we have is James, the brother of Jesus. Jesus had a brother called James. And this James was the James that wrote the book of James that we have in the Bible. But the James that we read of here in verse 2 uh, was an apostle. He was one who witnessed what Jesus did. He followed Jesus. Um, he's the brother of John. Now, why do I make a note of the fact that there's different Herods and there's different Jameses? Why am I telling you about all this information? Well, it's to remind us that what we're seeing here is grounded in reality. That as we read about the accounts in the Bible here, we're not reading myths, we're not reading fiction, we're not reading fairy tales, but we're actually reading about real people in real places. And that's the details that we get along the way. It's kind of like we get a, a slice of life. We get the names of people who are there. We get the names of places that were there. And it's all to remind us that Christianity, it's not a good idea. It's not just a good lifestyle, but it's actually living in a faith that is grounded in the historical reality of the world that we live in. And so back to the account then, James, the brother of John, is put to death. And then verse 3, when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, Herod, he seized to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Now just notice what's happening. James has been killed. Now Peter is seized and put into prison, expecting to be killed also. Now, who are these people? Well, James and Peter, along with John, were really the core team when it came to the early church. Uh, to illustrate that, you, um, at Jesus' transfiguration, when Jesus showed his glory, there were three apostles that were there. And who were they? They were Peter, they were James, and they were John. In other words, if you imagine a stool with three legs representing the early church, suddenly two of the legs are taken away. And this opposition is big. The church has experienced opposition before, but this is from the government. And now the leaders are being taken out. Now just reflecting on this, it's not something that we really experience in Australia, is it? Certainly we might experience a bit of opposition in Australia. Um, perhaps as Christians, we might be raising now the question regarding the freedom of religion. Uh, sometimes we hear about the difficulty of having scripture in schools. Sometimes maybe there'll be questions about how much we can identify with our Christian beliefs in the workplace. But never, never would you hear of someone being put in prison or someone being beheaded or killed for their faith in Australia. And it it doesn't seem to fit with our experience of being Christian. And yet what we read here shouldn't surprise us. Jesus says that whoever follows me must deny himself and carry his cross. In the book of Acts, we've read again and again that whenever the word goes out, opposition follows. And if you look at the New Testament, the letters are either written from people who are in prison or written to people who are suffering for their faith. And sadly, for many in the world, what they read about here is not surprising. Pastors in China who are imprisoned for being pastors, evangelists in Indonesia being locked up, people fleeing from their homes in Syria, coming over here as refugees because they identify themselves as Christians. And I think this is just 
a reminder for us again that the Bible always says to us that the expectation for what it means to follow Jesus now is suffering now, glory later. Suffering now, glory later. And it's just a reminder that the opposition that we're seeing the apostles go through is it's actually the norm rather than the exception. But then, scene two, the deliverance. The deliverance. And what we see is a picture of God's special deliverance. So Peter is locked up pretty tightly, we're told, in verse four. Verse four, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And furthermore, in verse 6, we see that the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guarding at the entrance. Why are we being told this? Well, clearly Peter is not going anywhere. Right? He, is, he is well and truly locked up and the key is thrown out. But then, but then God sends an angel to bring Peter out. Suddenly the, the shackles fall down and, and Peter's wondering, is this a dream? Is this a vision the whole time? And we see it in verse 9. In verse 9, uh, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angels left him. Now what we see here, what we're presented with, uh, the book of Acts is not saying it's an illusion, it's a magic trick. It's really happened. That an angel really did come into the prison and miraculously help Peter to escape. Now for many people, when they read this, it's a, it's a big barrier how can I really believe that this happened? Are you telling me, you know, that an angel really went in the prison and took him out? Uh, in fact, I, I know someone who's reading, a bi- reading the Bible with a non-Christian and uh, they're reading the Bible together and this non-Christian just says, I really want to believe, but it feels like every time I read the Bible, it's just fairy tales and myths. What am I supposed to do with this? And that's the truth. If you struggle with the spiritual you are going to struggle reading the Bible because it's right there. Um, the, Bible's make, the Bible makes it very clear that miracles are just plopped alongside with everything else. Uh, and the Bible is very clear that we live in a world that is more than the material. There is a spiritual world and it's real. The Bible tells us actually that we are more than slime plus time waiting to die. And I suspect that most of us expect that as well, that we're not just chemicals and neurons. But I think the, the easiest thing, and this is what I find helpful, is that even though the Bible speaks of many miracles, the biggest miracle that it speaks of is the claim that Jesus really is God. That when Jesus came into the world, he's not claiming to be a, a good teacher, he's not claiming to be a high ma- a rabbi, he's not claiming just to be a special man. No, Jesus really claims that he is God incarnate. I actually had a conversation with a person this week who said, Does the Bible actually say that Jesus was there at the very beginning when the world was created? (laughs) And I said, you're starting to get it. Yes, because Jesus really is God. And I find that helpful because that is a massive claim. And if you can accept that, if you find that to be true, then it's like you have a big firework. Jesus is God. 
and all the other little miracles are like little fire poppers, or not, not fire poppers, but the little party poppers that you have along the way. Because this is the big claim, that Jesus himself is God incarnate. And if he's not, I'm wasting your time. But if he is, then all the other blocks fall into place. And so the point is, verse 11, verse 11, Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. See, the Jewish people were hoping that Peter would be sent out and executed. And Herod was hoping that he would appeal to the masses by persecuting Peter. But Peter's saying, but God did this. God has rescued me. Why is it possible? Why am I out of jail despite all these guards? Because God is the one who is behind this. And then what follows is kind of like watching a comedy happen. Um, Peter goes to Mary's house. Again, lots of Marys in the Bible. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but a different Mary. So verse 12, verse 12. um, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Um, And then a, a servant girl called Rhoda comes to answer the door. And she's so surprised that knocking on the door is Peter, who's supposed to be in prison, that she runs off to the people who are praying in the house and she forgets to actually unlock the door for Peter. Um, It reminds me of my two-year-old son. Sometimes when he gets really, really excited, he's not sure what to do, so he pretends to be a a cow. (laughs) Have you ever met him? Um, But here, poor Rhoda is so excited that it's Peter uh, that she just runs off without even unlocking the door for poor Peter. And so he's just waiting there. Uh, But here's the really interesting thing. She runs to the people, but look at their response. Verse 15, verse 15, they say to Rhoda, you're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. Now, two things, two things. The first thing is that they assume that it's an angel. Uh, There could be a couple of options for what this means. It could mean that they think Peter's dead. So they go, okay, maybe it's his angel, i.e. his ghost or spirit floating around. It could mean that they think everyone has a guardian angel, and so this is Peter's version, his angel coming. Or it could simply mean um, a messenger. Uh, The word angel, literally translated, just means messenger. So they, they could be saying that Peter has sent someone to us to tell us something. But here's the thing, whatever you think of it, don't make too much of it. Because sadly, throughout church history, people have, for some reason, focused on the messenger and forgot about the one who's sending. Uh, Too often, people focus on these angels and they're focusing so much on the angel that their trust becomes in these messengers rather than the God who sent them. Uh, See, the Bible doesn't speak much about angels. Really, it says two things. They exist and don't trust in them. (laughs) Don't worship them. Right? That's the book of Hebrews. Don't worship angels. Instead, the Bible says the one that we trust, the one who is in charge, the one that we worship, the one that we pray to, is God. And that leads me to my second point about prayer. See, verse 12, we're told that the people are gathering at Mary's house to pray. And and even in verse 5, actually, verse 5, even earlier when Peter was first chucked into prison, notice what it says. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was 
earnestly praying to God for him. See, the church is praying for Peter. And this is so natural. When something's happening, we pray because we can trust God with our prayers. But if Peter was in prison, let's imagine if Stephen Sheed, for some reason, has been kidnapped in Jerusalem. And we hear about that. We pray for him. What would we be praying for? Well, we could be praying that he would be delivered. Perhaps the church is praying for Peter that he would be delivered and that he would be miraculously um, released from prison. Or perhaps they've seen James, the apostle. He's been killed. They've been praying for him. And so perhaps now they're just praying for boldness for Peter. But notice that whatever kind of thing that they were praying for, whatever kind of delivery, when God actually answered their prayers, they were surprised. (laughs) When Peter comes and he's going, knocking on the door, they go, it can't be Peter. And they were praying for Peter. (laughs) What does this tell us, brothers and sisters? What tells us that prayer is not a simple formula. Prayer is not the more I pray, then God must answer. Uh, Sometimes I hear people say, uh, if you have faith, then God will answer your prayers. Well, what we see here is, I'm not sure these people really had that much faith that God would answer that prayer. And God still answers their prayer. See, prayer is not a simple formula that once we work out, we get it sorted. Prayer is a relationship with the living God. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. Imagine you have someone who is dedicated and devoted. Every day they get up at 5.30 a.m., they're praying. They're the kind of prayer warriors that you want to have on your side. And every day they're making sure that they go through their prayer list, begging, interceding with God for the things that he needs. Now, on the other hand, imagine that you have a young child who hardly knows anything, and all they can say is, Dear God, help me. Now, who does God answer? And if you feel that God will answer that person because they've been praying so hard, then actually we need to revise that because what we see here is that prayer is a relationship. Sometimes you pray with conviction and God does not answer the way that you expect, and sometimes you will pray not really even believing it yourself, and God will answer that prayer. It's not a skill to master, it's a relationship to establish. And that's why I like um, Stephen Sheed's description of prayer. He gave it to us at the beginning of the year, at the big day out. He said, prayer is depending and delighting on God. And one of the reasons I love that is because it tells us that prayer is a relational thing. God is our heavenly Father, who wants to hear our prayers and to answer our prayers. And that moves us then to scene three. Scene three, in charge. See, the account moves back now to King Herod. And this time, we see that King Herod is in a political stoush with some of the neighboring cities, Tyre and Sidon. Um, King Herod's got the upper hand because he's ruling the land. And we can see that Tyre and Sidon want to get on King Herod's good side. So they're willing pretty much to do anything he wants. And then verse 21, verse 21, they come before Herod. Um, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of God, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. 
Just like that, the great threat that we've talked about is gone and Herod is no more than a distant memory. And we see that who is the one in charge? Well, God is. God is the ruler over rulers. God is the king over kings. God is in charge. Simple, right? (laughs) That makes life easy. How do we go through life? Well, God's in charge. Done. But let's just pause for a moment. Let's ask that question again. Who's in charge? Well, God is. But when? When is God in charge? Well, certainly when we see that Peter being freed miraculously from prison, you know, the the prison guards mean nothing, we can see the clear hand of God. God is in charge. Tick. And we can see that when King Herod, pretending that he's God, sitting on his mighty throne, thinking that he is all-powerful, and then the next moment he's being eaten by worms, is God in charge? Yes, But what about the start? What about when the Apostle James, the leader of the church, a witness of Jesus, is killed? The church is praying for James. James is a follower of Christ. And yet he is killed by a tyrant. Is God in charge then? See, how do we address the very real question that in life there is moments of delivery, but there are moments of chaos. What does it mean for God to be in charge then? And these are real questions. Uh, Let me illustrate. Uh, I read an interview of Bob Carr last week. Bob Carr, he used to be the Premier of New South Wales. And they asked him this question. They said, "Um, Mr. Carr, are you a religious man? And he said, no, I'm a skeptic. And they probed a bit further. Why are you a skeptic? And the quote's on the screen here. Um, And this is what he said. He said, The big challenge is the existence of evil. You see, in this book that I was reading, there's a discussion between two brothers, Ivan, a skeptic, and his younger brother, who's a seminarian. And Ivan says, If you're telling me that children have to suffer as part of God's plan, children who have no time to commit sin, then I cannot subscribe to that plan. For me, that's pretty powerful. Thanks for that. See, what is Bob Carr saying? He's saying that if there is chaos in the world, then I can't believe that there can be a God who's in control of that. And I can't believe then that there is a God. Let's bring this closer to home. Sometimes we see God deliver us miraculously again. Um, I had a friend who last week, his girlfriend was struggling at work and they prayed about it. And the very next day, someone from work called and said, can we help you out with work? Amazing. God delivers. But life's not always like that. Sometimes we pray and God doesn't answer the way that we expect. What about the pastor in China who prays and still gets imprisoned? Or the thousands of people who have fled Syria because of their faith? Or the many of you sitting in here who I'm sure have experienced real pain this year and you have prayed to God see it's easy to trust God that he is in charge when we have the Peter moments but what do we do when we feel like our life is a James moment and what this account shows us is that we need to move away from a simplistic view of God being in control we can't say God is in control only when it fits my plan see James's death was not a surprise. Uh, In fact, there was a moment where 
James, he's following Jesus, and he makes a very bold statement. He goes, Jesus, can me and my brother, can we sit at your right and your left hand when you go to heaven? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking about. And James goes, no, 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 we can do it. And then Jesus says, no, no, you will drink the cup and you will have the baptism that I get baptized in. And what Jesus is saying is, you will die a death similar to mine. It won't be of old age. It won't be of comfort. You will be executed. See, James's death was part of the plan. It was evil, yes, but it was part of the plan. God was still in charge. And, and the focal point where we see this most vividly, of course, is the cross. See, on the cross, evil men committed an evil act crucifying Christ. Was it evil? Yes. It was chaos. And yet, God was still in charge, working his purposes so that salvation could go to the ends of the earth. And so what we see is this. What do we do when actually life is more of a James moment rather than a Peter moment? Well, the first thing to say is that we keep going back to the cross. Because at the cross, we see the the perfect posture of God. We know what God is like. And we need a framework to actually help us navigate those moments. And the cross is that framework. Because at the cross, we see the real character of God. His kindness. His mercy. His tenderness. And that character does not change. Um, There's a hymn that's called... Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And in the chorus, it says, Jesus, Jesus, oh for grace to trust him more. And I think that's a prayer that we need to keep reminding one another in times of darkness is to go back to the cross and to remind ourselves of the character of God and to trust in this tender, loving, kind Jesus in those moments. But importantly, do you notice how the account finishes? Verse 24, verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. See, the overall picture of Acts is that God's word will go forth into the world. And here's the important thing. What is the content of this word? It's that Jesus is king. It's that Jesus is reigning in heaven. It's that our hope is secure. It's that in this life, there may be differences in the scoreline, but we know the final scoreline, and it's one of victory. And brothers and sisters, this is not supposed to minimize whatever you may be going through right now, but what I want to say is that if we didn't know the end, if we didn't have the final picture, if we didn't know that the word went out, then we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to offer. There's no point in gathering in church. There's no point in going to someone who is struggling and struggling and struggling because we have nothing to offer for them in this life. But we do know the end. The purposes of God are not stopped. His word goes out. God is in charge. His purpose has not changed. And it offers us hope not only for this life, but it offers us hope in eternity. Eternity. And so will you trust in this God? 
Will you trust in him to deliver you? Will you trust in him that he is working through you and for you, even in the James moment? And will you be so gripped by the eternal victory that you would continue to pray and long for this world to have that eternal hope of the word going out? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that whether chaos or in deliverance, we not only find that you are for us, but you are still in control and in charge of the world that we live in. Father, please help us to trust you when it's really hard and it's difficult. But Father, please so overwhelm us with your unstoppable gospel, the victory that has already been won, Uh, that we would be able to trust in you in all seasons of life. And we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.